You know, we just have come out of a wonderful season, uh, and we're finishing it really with our Global Impact Celebration. And I just want to thank not only all of the partners who came, but our champions who worked so hard to make that uh, weekend great for Barbara McDaniel and her crew. They host our champions and all of our partners every year, and they do so many behind-the-scenes things that you don't get to see, but it makes a huge difference for us. And our staff really did a fantastic job coming together and taking care of all the particulars of that week. And I need to say thank you to the entire church because you guys did an incredible job of engaging with our partners. You showed up on Saturday night in a way that we had not seen before, and our partners certainly felt loved through our night of giving. And then also in our one-day offering, we actually far exceeded what we asked you to give to the Timothy Initiative. We asked you to show up and give $70,000. You ended up giving $95,000 to the Timothy Initiative, which is just great. That's huge. Praise the Lord for that. And what that means for us is that that's 300 churches that we will definitely have our hands in planting. And don't forget that they had an outside donor agree to match whatever was given up to a million dollars over this year. And so that means that uh, they got another $95,000 as soon as that check was cut. And so that was awesome. And I'm just proud to be your pastor. It's proud to, to be part of a church that loves missions, that loves people, that wants to see people changed with the gospel because that's what we're all about. That's what makes the difference in eternity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about this red card at the end of the service. So just keep that handy. It's in your bulletin. But a, a very important thing for us to pay attention to uh, at the end of the service. Today we're actually starting a new series. And we're kind of going to be culminating three weeks with uh, thinking about what it means to live in a relationship with one another. And kind of let that be shaded by the golden rule. And so you'll be able to see that over the next three weeks, and then we'll take just a short break, and then we'll finish Matthew chapter 7. But that's where we're going to be, is back in the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to believe that we actually began this series of, of messages from the Sermon on the Mount about this time last year. And we've kind of gone into it, and then we step away from it, and we've come back to it. And so we'll finish that this fall. Uh, and God has been dealing with us on so many things, but this whole sermon series of the Sermon on the Mount really deals with the kingdom of God and how it's established in our hearts. And this morning, we're going to look at probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Most people know it, even if they know nothing else about Christianity. Uh, you'll hear people use it all the time. You've probably heard someone say it recently. And a lot of times people quote it without even realizing that they're quoting the Bible. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read the first six verses this morning and kind of look at this misunderstood verse, even though it's one of the most often quoted verses of the scripture. Matthew 7, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. So you've heard that one recently, right? Don't judge. That's the first part. They, they missed the second part. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under your feet under their feet, and then tear you into pieces. As Jesus spoke these words to the crowd that day, I think it would be helpful for us to remember some of the context 
around this group of people that he was speaking. When Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he began to say to us that we had to start from a place of humility. That's the starting point of our relationship with Christ. It starts when we're humble before the Lord and we recognize our own sin and we recognize that there is no cure for our sin in and of ourselves. And so Jesus outlined that the way for every person to go forward spiritually actually starts with a recognition of sin and in humility crying out to God and asking God to move in our lives over the sin in our lives and and to really understand that when we mourn over our sin is when we start to have a relationship with God. If we're not unwilling for God to deal with our sin, then we can't go forward. And this entire Sermon on the Mount builds a framework out of that, and we see that today. And what Jesus says in these first six verses really can be broken down into three different things for us to understand and to deal with this. And the most obvious is judging people. That's where he starts. And he spends a lot of his time talking about that as he says, don't judge lest you be judged. And I think before we understand what it might mean, we have to rule out a few things that it can't possibly mean for us this morning. You see, judgment is rendered in life in all sorts of ways and in circumstances. God uses people to make judgments in our lives. Uh, You have judges in the nation that adjudicate cases of right and wrong and help us to do that. And if we don't have judges that make judgments based on law, what you have is anarchy. So he certainly can't be talking about that. If you've ever been to court, you know what that's like. You you bring your complaint against someone else or or the court brings a complaint against you. And that, that has to have a judgment made for us to be able to go forward. And without that, we, we don't have any way of having a framework in our country. And God uses that to restrain evil in nations. He also uses it to bring order to the world. But judgment could also be rendered in the church through church discipline. Jesus is not contradicting what he commanded the church to practice a little bit later in Matthew chapter 15, where he gave very clear instructions on how to deal with a brother or sister who falls into sin. In Matthew 18, I'm sorry, in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more uh, with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Jesus is outlining a system of church discipline for the church to remain pure. And I want to just say that the goal of this is for someone to be brought into repentance, not for someone to be excommunicated. The goal is is not the idea like, let's find this person who's in sin and kick them out of the church. The goal is that you go to them and say, hey, this isn't right. You know this isn't right. You, You need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to walk in faith in this. And the only time that we should be happy about that is when someone repents, right? I mean, that, that ought to bring joy to our lives because if you've ever been part of something like that, you know how difficult it is. You know how unsettling it is to have to do it. But Jesus says, if someone won't listen to you, they won't listen to others, they won't listen to the church, they can't be part of the church. They're throwing off restraint. Treat them as a Gentile and even a tax collector. Harsh words for us this morning to hear. The final area for the believer to consider is to make judgments about what is right and wrong. What Jesus certainly is not saying is that you should not make judgments based on morality. He's not talking about that. You make judgments every day based on what is right and wrong according to the standards of the scripture. At least you should. 
You should look at things and say, this isn't right. I don't need to do that. This isn't for me. Or conversely, this is right for me to do. And and the scripture prescribes that I do this. And so I need to do it. You make a judgment about that. We have to make evaluations and judgments on our decisions. And we make evaluation and judgments about our culture in which we live. Above all, this is not a command for us to live and let live. It's not a command for us to live as if there are no consequences for the moral choices that people make in their lives. Jesus is not saying that we should never call something wrong. He's not saying don't make judgments. And we need to be very careful about this mindset, especially in the church today. Because what he isn't saying is don't worry about morality. Everything is fine. You do what you do. I do what I do. Everybody's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. He's not saying that we don't make those kinds of judgments. It's a funny thing because we live in a culture that values that kind of thinking above all else, tolerance above all. Listen to this quote from former pastor D. James Kennedy. I believe he's gone on to be with the Lord now. Tolerance is the last virtue of a depraved society. When you have an immoral society that has blatantly, proudly violated all of the commandments of God, there is one last virtue they insist upon, tolerance for their immorality. And I'm afraid that's how almost every person I've ever heard use this verse, that's what they mean. Well, you know, the Bible says don't judge. So let me do what I need to do. You get out of my way, let me live how I want to live. And I understand a lost world crying out for that because what the world wants is approval of immorality at all times. Let me do what I want to do. Let me run this as far as I can take it. What's a problem is when that shows up in the church. And the church begins to say, well, don't judge. You know, we have no moral voice. We have no standing in the culture. That is absolutely not what's being talked about here. So what could Jesus have meant when he told his followers to abandon the practice of judging others? Let's look at these verses again, verses one and two. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judged, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It occurred to me this week that as Jesus was speaking this passage of scripture and this sermon, there would have been a lot of Pharisees that were in the crowd. They were fond of adding to the law in a way that burdened people with more and more rules and regulations. They constantly thought of themselves as superior to everyone else, and, and especially the Gentiles. They believed that God had done something in their lives. That, that made them superior to everyone else. Now, surely if you're a Christian and a Christ follower this morning, God has done something in your life that he has not yet done in someone else's life. But know this, it's available to everyone and they get, what, they get there the same way that you and I got there. So the ground is level there. We're not better than anyone else. We're living in a way that is different from other people. You may remember that Jesus spoke about this in Luke chapter 18 where he once told a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee who both came to the temple to pray one day. And the tax collector stood up and said, I thank you, God, that I am a law-abiding citizen, that I'm not uh, someone who breaks your law, and I'm certainly not like the tax collectors, you know, over here that I see over there. They're, They're terrible people. Thank you that I am not like them. And then the tax collector stood and would not even lift his eyes to heaven, the scripture says, because he was so ashamed of who he was and he stood there with his head bowed and beat his chest and just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, Jesus pointed that out to us to say that there's a way for us to go forward and it's through humility. The tax collector wanted to extol his own, uh, wanted to be extolled by God, but the Pharisee wanted to extol his own virtue. 
He wanted to be proud before the Lord. And judgment here, as we're seeing, is really a critical spirit that invades our lives and causes us to find fault at every chance we can with people. We denounce them for their shortcomings and revel in their failures. So judging someone is, is when I critically step back and look at their lives or their actions and I begin to point out all the flaws and inconsistencies in their lives and I'm afraid what I do is I start to love it. I, I really like to revel in, in their failures and their shortcomings. That's prevalent in our culture today, isn't it? It's a phenomenon that's brought to us by a never-ending news cycle that must be fed by something and most oftentimes it's fed by criticism. It's people who never make any decisions, constantly ridiculing anyone who has to make a tough decision from the safety and comfort of a news desk without any of the consequences of a tough decision. So we do that, right? It, it, we do it in sports, we do it in politics, we do it in entertainment, and we constantly berate people. And if you notice, it, one of the new things that you see all the time is that when you read a headline now, it says, so-and-so blasts this person. So-and-so ripped this person. And we love that. And we revel in it as if that's a great thing that I ripped somebody or I blasted somebody. You will be judged by the same way in which you're judging. It's impossible right now for anyone in our culture to be good enough to have any merit. We now believe that everything a person has done from elementary school should be public record going forward. So we look back at their lives, and if I can find any fault in you, you're disqualified from receiving an award, you're disqualified from having a job, you're disqualified from basically being a human being. Guess what? The problem with that kind of judgment is that every one of us has a past. The problem with that kind of judgment is that every one of us has something lurking in our past that we're not proud of either. And if you look at it and apply what Jesus is saying, he's saying, be careful, because the way that you extend judgment to others, you will be judged in the same manner. Well, this critical attitude and judgmental attitude often exists in the workplace as well, doesn't it? People criticize those in leadership, talk about them, say they're idiots. My boss is an idiot. Well, maybe he's an idiot because you're working for him. I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, you never know what's going on. Right? I mean, these kinds of things, we talk about these things as if we had all of the knowledge and all of the solutions to everything that's going on. And we don't understand that when we talk like that, that same judgment will be applied to us. So we criticize people in our company, disparage them at every turn, believing it makes us look really smart. What it makes you look is proud. Pride. Well, this is also found in our homes, and I'm about to get real personal for some of us this morning because some of us have forgotten what our high school transcripts looked like when we talked to our children about theirs. I'm pretty sure most of you didn't go to Harvard, right? But we talk to our kids as if we, we were the perfect students, and we understand all of this. I checked our membership role, and you know what else I didn't find? I didn't find anybody in the Pro Football Hall of Fame pro baseball hall of fame, pro basketball hall of fame. But when we talk to our kids, all we do is nitpick and criticize everything that they do. And it's never good enough. And we're constantly finding fault in those things. We do it with our spouses. Not good enough. The meal isn't good enough. You don't work hard enough. You don't do this. And we, we don't realize what we're doing. And I want to just say this to us, especially those of us who are adults, you be careful how you talk about your parents. You be careful how you talk about your parents because your kids are listening to that and they will talk about you in the same way. You will teach them to honor their parents by the way that you honor your parents or even the memory of your parents or you will teach them to criticize and disparage and judge everything that you ever did. How many perfect parents in the room? Raise your hand, please. Right? 
It is hard. Can we just get an amen that it's hard being a parent? Can we get an amen that you screw up every day? <laughs> no, that one's not very hardy. <laughs> Bunch of prideful jerks, right? I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Every day, don't you think your parents did the best they could with what they had to? I mean, we understand nobody's perfect, but you understand when you, when you read this passage of scripture, this fault finding and nitpicking and criticizing, it doesn't go anywhere. I think there's this danger even in Christian circles, we see this. It's at Christian schools or community groups or even churches. Someone recently asked me to go online and, and Google or YouTube something. It was a documentary that a pastor had been involved in. And I watched it. It was really encouraging me. It was uplifting. But what happened that I noticed is that on the right side of the screen, there were all these videos. So-and-so responds to pastor's documentary. And they just blasted everything the guy said. When did we become the response team for the Lord. Why does God need us to do that? Why does God need me to run down another church or another pastor or another person within our church to gossip about that person and just enjoy that juicy morsel because I feel like when I'm, I'm chewing on that person, I'm really getting something out of it. The problem with the modern media platforms that we have is that we have these supercomputers we carry around in our pockets. They're called phones. And they allow us to speak to things all the time that we really don't need to speak to. James 1.19 reminds us that we should spend most of our time listening. And I know this is hard because it's hard for all of us. But we need to consider this. It's not a suggestion. Listen to this. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And too much of our time is spent talking about people. And when we talk about them we, we imply that we fully understand their motives, which is impossible to do. You can't understand people's motives. You weren't there when they made the decisions. And judgment that brings condemnation of people's actions and motives is done from a place of pride and superiority, and it has no place for us. The danger is the reckoning that comes to our lives as the measuring stick is reversed and then applied to our lives. What all of us really need is what the tax collector cried out for, mercy. That's what we need. That's what all of us hope for. We hope that mercy is extended to us by other people. We hope that mercy is extended to us by the Lord. We hope that people are kind and understanding with us and see our shortcomings and that we're a work in progress. And as we'll learn in a few weeks, we need to do the exact same thing to other people as we apply the golden rule to our lives. And the second thing Jesus addressed actually had to do with the danger of judging someone else before you yourself are healthy. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can absolutely hear the absurdity of this statement as Jesus makes it, can't you? How could you help me get the speck out of my eye if your vision is blocked by the log sticking out of your eye. It's an illustration of vision being obscured by something that's enormous so that you can't possibly see the little particular thing in someone else's life, right? Now, for most of us, it doesn't take much 
for our vision to be disturbed. If you've ever had a piece of dust or dirt get in your eye a little bit, or maybe a gnat flies in your eye, or even an eyelash gets in your eye, you know what starts to happen, right? Your eye starts to water, and you start to you know, get, get crazy with it. You start rubbing it, it becomes red. And, and maybe you've had the experience like I, I've had like with the kids a time or two, and something's in my eye, something's in my eye, and it's an eyelash that's like attached that just kind of turns in, right? And it just drives you crazy. Well, how could I possibly see to get that out of someone else's eye if I have something that's blocking my vision? The comparison makes it plain, doesn't it? Too often, what we're doing is ignoring the things that God's trying to work on in our lives while we criticize and look at everyone else's lives. And it doesn't work. We can't do it. We're on this fault-finding mission, and, and the reason that we stay there is because we like being blind to our own sin. Because it's easier to play the critic than it is to be the humble servant of the Lord who asks the Lord to help us deal with our own sin. Jesus is telling us that we're incapable of helping someone else while we're blind to our own sin. And this becomes apparent, doesn't it? When we go to work and we want to be the moral police at work, but we don't live like a Christian day in and day out. It becomes apparent when we're at home and what we do is we lead our family as say, do as I say, not as I do. Right? I mean, that, that becomes this, this great kind of friction point at home. And you can't live that way. We can't live in a way that, that says, I need to get this little thing out of your life, but I have this glaring weakness and deficiency that's in my life. People at work see through it. Your kids see through it. Your spouse will see through it. We can't live unethically and then try to take the moral high ground. We read verse five, it becomes clear. We might help be able to help someone remove the speck out of their eye if we're humble enough to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of cleansing and refining in our own lives. That's the Holy Spirit's work. You know, whenever I get a chance to meet with a couple who's having marital issues, one of the things that I find to be really helpful for all of us to remember, but especially when we're in conflict, a lot of times we come in with an agenda that we want someone else to help us fix this person in our lives, right? We need to go have counseling, and counseling's not going to be about me. It's going to be about you, right? We are going to counseling so we can talk about your issues. Well, what we do sometimes is say, this week, why don't you stop worrying about what that person needs to do, and why don't you worry about the things that you need to do? It changes things, doesn't it? It changes things when you humbly start to look at your own life and say, how can I make my marriage better? Forget the other person. What can I do to make my marriage better? How can I show up and be the spouse that I need to be? What can I get rid of in my life that's holding us back from having the relationship that God wants us to have? If you focus on how you can change for the better by humbly going before the Holy Spirit, you have a chance at getting the speck out of someone else's life. And this is the thing that David prayed when he was praying in the Psalms. In Psalm 139, verse 23, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful, or your Bible may say wicked way, in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. David was praying this way because just like us, it's very easy to hide this stuff in our lives. It's very easy for us to bury that deep down and just kind of say, well, nobody else has really seen it. Nobody's bringing it up. And I don't want to deal with that stuff. But, oh, let me help you get this stuff out of your life, right? It's a little bit like somebody wanting to help you financially get your house in order when they're in debt up to their eyeballs. It just doesn't work. Hey, read this book. It really hasn't changed my life at all, but maybe it'll change yours. It's not really a ringing endorsement that you want to hear. 
Well, we understand that, that what we have to do is go before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to continually refine our lives and expose us for our sin. And this prayer leads to humility because it admits that we don't have it all figured out. And if we could remember that God still has some refining work to do in our lives, we might be able to see this morning that he is refining and working in other people's lives as well. That they're on a journey just like we are. And that kind of leads us to this final admonition. And when we read it in verse 6, I think it's a little bit surprising. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And we just learned not to judge. And yet here's the balance of those verses, and it seems harsh. Understand who the swine and the dogs are and don't give holy things to them. But wait, you just told me not to judge. Well, remember, we're making judgments about things. We're not trying to be critical, but we're trying to be discerning. Calling someone a dog or a pig seems like it might be a little bit out of place, but in the scriptural context... Those words are found in several places. In the book of Peter, he talks about the dogs and swine as unbelievers who were once part of the church but who have walked away from the faith. The book of Revelation tells us that the dogs will not enter into heaven. And I know that's very difficult for us in a Western context where we love our pets and we think about our dogs and we love them and things like that. But in the cultural context of the day, dogs were just kind of seen as scavengers. Nobody was bringing their dog and letting it sleep in the bed. You know what I mean? That was just, that's a new... I know, I know that's hard for some of you. It's a newer phenomenon that's happened, right? But in the cultural context, that wasn't normal. And so when Jesus says, understand who the dogs and the swine are, it's pretty rough. But it's important for us to understand, especially as we begin to engage people with the gospel, you'll never win anybody to Christ by being judgmental towards them. Won't work. Won't work. As we engage people with the gospel, and you need to be engaging people with the gospel, every week you need to have your eyes open so that you can engage people with the gospel, but there's an admonition here for us as we do it. I think there's a trend amongst believers right now to believe that if we could just get the argument right and argue with people that by the sound reasoning of our logic, everyone would get saved. That's just simply not true. And we sometimes uh, mistakenly call that a Christian apologetics. Like if I could learn Christian apologetics, then I could argue with everyone and they'd be saved. Christian apologetics has its place. It's not to argue with the lost world. Christian apologetics is so that we can reason and think through the big discussions and the big things of God so that our faith may be sound. No one comes to Christ because you entered into a debate. That, that's not it. That's not the goal here. When you engage someone with the gospel, you're planting the seed of the gospel and you're really seeking to determine if God is moving in that situation. And I want to be clear about this because if God's moving, people will be saved. And if God's not moving, it means not yet. So what you're doing is trying to plant a seed. So if you engage someone by saying, I want to talk to you about all the reasons that you're going to hell and let me just point out all of these things in your life, what have you done? How is that a seed planted? That's a turnoff to the gospel. You say there's no point in throwing this out there so that it can be trampled upon by the swine and the dogs, people who don't believe what you believe. It's a funny thing because we understand from John chapter 16 and verse 8 that the Holy Spirit is at work and he's doing several things. He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
It's a very rare thing in most people's lives that you have to point out what is wrong. Most people have a pretty good idea of what is wrong. They have very clearly defined things of right and wrong. Most people don't need you to point that out. The Holy Spirit is doing his job. He's convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Our job is to plant the seed of the gospel. But I, I want to remind you of this by telling you a ridiculous story that I've told you before. In my very first year of pastoring, I gave a very impassioned sermon on tithing. Yes, it started then. I believe in tithing then. I believe in tithing now. I believe in tithing 100 years from now because it's a scriptural mandate. And by the way, just food for thought, if the church tithed, we wouldn't have any monetary issues. We wouldn't have debt. We wouldn't have to worry about funding mission. I mean, just if we tithe, just baseline, if all of us did that. So not the sermon today, but that was free, right? <laughs> I'm impassioned about it. It's God's faith test in our lives, especially in the Western culture. It's God's faith test in our lives. I give this very impassioned sermon on tithing and I call for the invitation and the response. And a young woman slips out of her seat and comes forward and says, I realize today that I must give my life to Christ. And I thought, did you hear anything that I just said? Because we were talking about tithing. We weren't talking about this. And then I wondered if I had actually given the right sermon that morning, you know, because I had planned on preaching on tithing. And it just goes to show you the Holy Spirit's at work all the time. The Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it doesn't have to be uh, dependent on me or you to give the perfect version of our story. We don't have to have the perfect argument. We don't have to do the perfect, perfect gospel presentation because the Holy Spirit is doing his work. Our job is to be faithful to plant the seed. Notice how Jesus dealt with people in the scripture. Jesus never engaged in debate with people. When his critics came, he was short with them, he was terse with them, but how did he respond to people who were on the continuum moving towards salvation? He was kind, he was compassionate. He answered their questions. He dealt with them. He spoke truth in their lives. But he never debated people. And I think sometimes we feel like that our job is to debate people. We feel like that we need to go online and debate the whole world as if that really does anything. We, we don't have to be debaters of the gospel. We have to be planters of the gospel. I find that so many of us feel like it's a lot easier to argue with people than it is to actually just share the gospel. That's the goal. Share the gospel. Be open to people. Be kind to people. Be compassionate to people. Let them see that you love the Lord your God in everything that you say and that you do, and they'll be drawn to that. One of the stories that I read and uh, getting ready for this sermon it was, it was a fascinating story. There were a group of international people talking about how they did missions around the world. And there was a lady from Africa there who, who listened to all of this and she said, well, that's interesting because in our culture, we, we don't really train up missionaries and send them out with a specific plan. What we do is we take two, two groups of Christians, two families of Christians, and we send them to a village where there are no Christians and they live their lives and people understand by the differences of their lives what the gospel is and that's how they come to Christ. Right? I mean, you, you don't have to be a debater. You don't have to be a person who's antagonistic with people, right? You win more with a little bit of honey than you will with a little bit of vinegar. It's true in our lives. We join the Holy Spirit as he's working. And I think if I was to say something to us, we understand that there are differences in us and the world. 
I'm not telling you to lay down and check morality at the door and just say everything is good and let's all be tolerant and can't we all get along? No, be firm in your conviction. We just sang it. Our God is never moved. That, that doesn't change. Throughout all of history, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And at the same time, we can engage the culture being firm in our conviction, not giving in to their convictions, and yet show them the difference. So let me ask us this morning this question. As we've read this, is there a judgmental spirit in you? Are you constantly judging other Christians? Are you constantly judging other people? fault-finding, nitpicking, gossiping? Are you doing it with a, a kid at home, a spouse, a co-worker, church leader, Sunday school teacher? That has no place for us as believers. And maybe this morning, what has a place for you is to get the log out of your eye. Could it be that it's time to remove the obstruction from your eye? Maybe that's clouding how you view other people. Maybe the obstruction makes it easier for you to judge other people because you don't see them clearly. And that we would go before the Lord and just be humble enough to say, Holy Spirit, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. Could, could, that, be, could that be us today? And, and maybe it's, you're like the, the young lady who heard that sermon on tithing and you're thinking, why am I feeling this today? He's talking about judgmental attitudes. I'm not judgmental. But could today be the day of salvation for you? I won't argue with you about it, but I will tell you this. There's a God who has loved you with an everlasting love. He's given his life for you. He lived a perfect life so that you wouldn't have to. He died in your place because he loves you so, so much. And the worst thing in the world would be for you to know that love and spend eternity in hell because you never received that love. To know that the words that I'm saying are true but never receive it. Would you give your life to Christ today? I want to ask us now if we could just, just to bow and contemplate for just a few moments what Jesus has said. For those of you who are believers in the room, is it time to lay down pride? It's so easy for us, isn't it? We forget that God did the work. God saved us. The Holy Spirit refines us. We become a little proud of who we are and start to think we're better than everyone else. Is there something in your life that is obscuring your vision this morning? Maybe you're not a Christ follower yet in the room, but you're here and you've listened to this this morning and I want to just tell you the gospel is simple this morning. It's that we're all sinners. Every one of us has fallen short of God's design for our lives. Our actions fail. We make wrong choice after wrong choice. And left to our own, there is no hope. The scripture says that we'll spend eternity separated from God. 
And yet he says that Jesus Christ died in our place to make a way for us to know the Father. And that if you would confess that you're a sinner this morning and believe that Christ died in your place and that God raised him from the dead and you would declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'd be saved today. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing and it's a chance for you to respond. Church, a chance for you to respond at the altar perhaps in humility. Maybe for the first time for you to respond to the invitation as Jesus Christ has knocked at the door of your heart this morning and he says, he stands at the door and knocks and whoever would open the door, he would come in and dwell with that person. So as we sing, you respond. Maybe you give your life to Christ today. Father, would you free us from judgmental attitudes? Would you free us from pride and self-sufficiency? Holy Spirit, would you carve that away? And would you prepare us this week for the engagements that we'll have to be sensitive to the people that we'll talk to, to know when you're moving in their lives or whether we're just planting a seed? But Father, could we point as many people as possible to you this week? And we know that a judgmental attitude stands in our way of being able to do that. So Father, help us to remain firm in our conviction and loving in our lifestyle. Father, for the one who maybe today is ready to receive you as Lord and Savior, I pray that now they would respond to the gospel. Maybe for the first time that they would give their life to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.